Well, first of all, I just have to do a shout-out for my husband, who's unfortunately not very well. So usually he's sat on the front row. He's not here, so love you. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome watching online. So glad that we can pack everybody in. It's so good. Well, you know, Christine Gardner, Christine Gardner works here. She uh, leads our psychotherapist and counseling center, Oasis. And she did a staff training for us a number of months ago. And it was on self-care. And one of the things that she said to us was, you will have pain. Not quite what we were expecting for self-care, but she's right. Her point was that life is full of pain. We cannot get away from it. When we understand that there will be pain and we accept it, we may not like it, we certainly don't have to want it. However, when we understand it will be with us, then our relationship with pain changes. It then allows us, rather than to suppress and try and push away pain, it allows us to then think about how we can invite God into the pain that we are experiencing. In the same way, life is messy. You cannot have a mess-free life, I'm sorry. It just is the way it is. And so we have to accept that there will be mess. But we learn that God is not unfamiliar or surprised by mess either. In fact, today we're going to look at how God can be actually found in our mess. In our second week of Advent, we look at the messy pre-story of the birth of Jesus. We look at two characters in the narrative captured in the Gospel of Luke who find themselves in deeply messy situations and yet find ways to trust God despite the far from ideal circumstances. We'll look at how their stories relate to us how they teach us that we too can find God in the messiness of our own lives, embrace that mess, and position ourselves for a hopeful future. So of the four Gospels, only Luke begins with the story of the birth of John the Baptist, and he introduces us to his father, Zachariah. Now Luke tells us some interesting facts about Zachariah to help us characterize the type of man that he was. First of all, his profession. He was very honorable, he was a priest, and he belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, called Elizabeth, was also of priestly descent, and they were both described as upright in the sight of God. We also learn that they were childless. Scripture tells us that Elizabeth was barren, and we knew culturally at that time there was a lot of shame and public disgrace around not being able to have children. And then finally we're told that they were old. Well, actually, Scripture says that they were well along in years, which I think is a much better way of saying they were old, right? <laughs> so next, Luke leads us into the story by setting the scene in the temple. The priests bore the responsibility of serving in the temple, offering the sacrifice required by Mosaic law, acting as the mediators between the people and God, 
And on this occasion, we are told Zechariah had been chosen by Lot to enter into the holy place. He's there to burn incense. And the offering of incense represented the prayers of intercession for all of the people. So it was considered a very sacred task. And for Zechariah, an opportunity of a lifetime. So while Zechariah was in the holy place, an angel appeared to him. Now, understandably, Zechariah was afraid. I think I would be too. Even though, as a priest, he would have a sense of awe and trepidation when he's serving. So that would be natural, but this was a fear much, much more. He was probably not expecting to encounter an angel on that day. But the angel goes on to declare a very positive and personal message to Zachariah, telling him that Elizabeth and his prayers to have a child were about to be answered. So let's pick up the story in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 to 17. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zachariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. Many will rejoice because of his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteousness, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Wow, what a message. You can almost feel the excitement in the angel's declaration that will ultimately prepare the way for the long-awaited Messiah. But unfortunately... Zachariah's response was not one of joy, but rather disbelief. So let's just take a moment to consider this. So here is Zachariah. He's a Jewish priest. We're told he is a good, upright man. He's standing in the holiest, holy place. And he's carrying out the role of offering the prayers on behalf of the people, including his own very personal prayer, and he's facing an angel. Now, Zechariah knew the Torah, so he would have been very familiar with the story of how a heavenly visitation to another elderly couple many years before, Abraham and Sarah, who also received a message that they would bear a son who would play an important role in the story of God redeeming a fallen world. Despite all of this, Zechariah lacked faith and he doubted God. So we have to ask the question, why? Had he become hardened over the years of praying for something and waiting and waiting for that prayer to be answered? Can we relate to that? Was he over-familiar with the routine of priestly duties? I wonder maybe sometimes we can become hardened to God as our prayers appear to go unanswered. Of course, we don't stop praying, but do we allow a little bit of disbelief hinder us from truly seeing God so when he does answer, 
we possibly miss it? I think for some of us here that have been Christians for a long time, we can find ourselves appearing to trust God on the outside, carrying all the good duties of a good Christian, saying all the right things, and yet, if we were really honest, we've allowed the years of unanswered prayers, and with that, a disappointment in God to take root. And if an angel were to visit us today, how would we respond? Well, Zachariah's response was, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man. My wife is along in years. And judging by the reply, I don't think the angel was particularly happy about that response. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Ouch. The angel is making a point. While scripture records numerous visitations of angelic beings, there's only a couple of recorded references to their actual names. And here, the Hebrew name for Gabriel means God is my strength. The angel is leaving no doubt in Zachariah's mind that he's been sent directly by God, reminding Zachariah of the power of God and his promises that will be fulfilled. And the consequences of Zachariah's disbelief, he's struck dumb, he's physically silenced. As Zachariah eventually leaves the holy place, all the expectant people and worshippers outside, no doubt wondering what on earth happened, they're met with silence from Zachariah. The greatest chance for Zachariah to do the job well, and he messes up. And I imagine he went home with disappointment in himself, silenced not just by the angel, but with a deep sense of shame. So let's talk about shame. I think we underestimate the power of shame over our lives and how it easily can hold us captive. According to Brené Brown, a respected professor, author, and researcher for 20 years on vulnerability and shame, she says, shame is the painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed, therefore unworthy of love and belonging. It's the competing, conflicting expectation of who we are supposed to be and the huge weight of expectation we put on ourselves or are put on us by others. Shame tells us that we are not good enough and we will never be good enough. Brown connects the destructive nature of shame to addiction, depression, aggression, bullying, suicide, self-harm, eating disorders, to name a few. And the problem with shame is that it is often hidden. We don't talk about it. We keep it hidden, and then we carry this weight of self-judgment 
And then because of that, we get stuck in this cycle of negative behavior that then leads us to more shame and guilt. And as Christians, we are not immune to shame. And I wonder if especially in church communities, the secret, silent, judgmental hold of shame keeps us from being truly open and honest with each other. Are we safe communities that allow people to be vulnerable, to share their stories without fear of judgment? Well, Scripture tells us very clearly, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death and shame. So if you, if you are feeling the weight of shame, then today I want to encourage you to break the secrecy, the silence, your own judgment. Talk to a trusted friend. See a pastor, a counselor, a community group leader, Believe that because of Jesus, we can confess our failures and sins, know that we are forgiven, and shame has absolutely no hold over us. And as a community, as the Vine Church, could we let's be less judgmental, stop the criticism, stop the pretense of perfection, and instead be known for our empathy, our love, and our grace. Shame has no place in the body of Christ. When Elizabeth confirms her pregnancy, the shame that Zachariah at having doubted could have festered within him. However, we see that he makes the important decision to choose to be vulnerable to surrender and trust. So he decides to obey the angel's instruction and he's surrounded by his community when he names his son John, therefore declaring the hope in a future salvation. And that shame, along with his silence, is broken. And sandwiched in this story is another story and this is the story of Mary, the mother of Jesus. I love this painting. This is by the artist Henry Osawatana. Because while it's rich in symbolism, it captures the vulnerability and simplicity of Mary in her surroundings. Mary was a young woman, a teenager, in the context of the culture of that time of marriageable age, betrothed to Joseph, who was himself a descendant of King David. And we're told that the angel Gabriel was sent to Mary. And when he appears, she too responds with fear, like Zachariah, but unlike Zachariah, her fear is followed by a surrender and a trust. So let's read from Luke 1, verses 30. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You've found favor with God. 
You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I am a virgin, the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. The 15th century Franciscan priest, Roberto Caratiolo, describes Mary's response to her encounter with the angel Gabriel as this emotional journey from this sense of disquiet, of being troubled, to a reflection as she's listening, to an inquiry as she begins to question, and then to submission as she acknowledges she's the Lord's servant, and later as merit as she is blessed. But I think it can be too easy to dismiss the intensity of that moment and the range of emotions for Mary, especially as we, we're all familiar with her story. We're familiar with the outcome. But Mary, in real time, probably had no idea what the future would bring. She's described as being deeply troubled, even before the angel had told her what was happening. Mary probably knew because of her ancestry that being singled out by God was a fearful blessing. And for us, how often do we in the moment find God's ways sometimes really overwhelming? We too are on this emotional journey. However, when we can look back, it becomes so much clearer. So as the angel delivered his message, despite the enormity of what had been shared, her humility and acceptance demonstrated a level of faith and trust in God, even that beyond a priest. She was to be the mother of Israel's long-anticipated, long-awaited Messiah, and her life would be turned upside down. God's plan for Mary was messy and risky. The scandal for Mary to be pregnant and unmarried exposed her to the rejection of Joseph. But as with all God's plans, he controlled the responses of those that mattered. And in the case of Mary, Joseph became Mary's number one protector. And we read that Joseph accepted Mary after he too was visited by an angel and trusted God despite the social stigma he would also face. And I love that about God. How he works should be an encouragement to us. We don't face our difficult, complex, messy situations alone. And God is in control. 
I have heard so many stories of messy, difficult, complex, tragic situations. And I have heard how God has stepped in and people have encountered that God is with them and in control. So what do these stories show us? That even in mess, God is at work and God is in control. Mess for Zachariah was the failure to believe his physical disability, the embarrassment from his fellow priests and worshippers, as well as the shame at having doubted. Mess for Mary was being pregnant, unmarried, the social ostracism, the judgment and possible rejection. Sometimes our choices mean we are responsible for the mess. If Zachariah had chosen to believe instead of doubt, his story would have been very different. The angel was very clear in telling Zachariah that because he doubted, he would not be able to speak. But sometimes we have no control over the mess we find ourselves in. Like pregnant Mary, who had no control over the cultural response of that day and the rejection that could follow. And just like the characters in these stories, whether we are responsible or not, we can choose how we respond in the mess. You see, Zachariah eventually chose to see God in his answered prayer, to surrender through obediently naming his son John and trusting God as he declared his praise and thankfulness. Mary chose to see God, despite not fully understanding her, surrendering herself and trusting God with an uncertain future. Through both stories, we can learn that how we choose to see God in our mess will lead us to surrender and trust and then hope in a future. So how do these stories become relevant to us? A number of years ago, I worked for an organization um, that provided funding for new companies um, and injection of capital for those that wanted to diversify and grow. My job was to interview prospective clients and to prepare a business plan. And then those business plans would then result in the funding being rejected or approved. So I worked for this company for about just under a year, and during that time, got very close to all of my colleagues. It was a family-run business, and so even outside of work hours, you know, we would meet up. Then, just a week before Christmas, I arrived into the office, and I was told that the company had closed, and I was to go home. Then shortly, we found out that actually the company that had been operating had no funding. There was no money, and it was now under investigation. And so I went home also being told that there was also no money to pay the staff. And so a week before Christmas, we were told we would not get paid. It was a messy Christmas. I think one of the things that I really struggled with 
was that knowing I had worked for a company for almost a year and I had no idea. And for me, I felt really embarrassed and I felt shame. I'd worked in a company that was responsible for ultimately causing a lot of pain and difficulty for organization and companies. And I had no idea. People had been deceived. There was pain and disruption in that. And now I face the harsh reality that also I was out of a job. I had no money. My husband, Richard, was studying at the time. And so we really didn't know what we were going to do. But even though I had a lot of questions, because after all, I thought God had provided this job for me, the reality was this situation was way out of my control. But I could control how I responded to it. So I chose to lean into God to try to see him in all of this mess. And I asked him a lot of questions too. I chose to surrender my fear, my worry, and my shame. And then I just chose to trust God, that he was at work, and that he was the hope in my future. Didn't make sense to me, didn't have all the questions answered, but I chose to trust God. It took about nine months before I got another job. During that time, it wasn't easy. And I remember we ate a lot of baked beans. And if you're from the UK, you will know that is the staple diet if you have no money in the UK. But even though it wasn't always easy, and sometimes fear would creep in, what if I never get a job again? What if nobody ever hires me? All of that, but I had to push through that and keep on trusting that God was with me. So eventually I got another job and that job turned out to be so much better than the other job. And eventually it would lead me to here in Hong Kong. But I had to learn an important lesson that it was not about me getting a job. I had to learn that the security of my future was not tied up in my work. The security of my future was in the redemptive work of the cross that reconciled me back into a relationship with God and then a hope in a future with Jesus where there will be no more pain, no more death, no more sorrow. And this is the hopeful future that Zachariah and Mary saw in the messages from the angel that declared the ultimate fulfillment of the promised coming Messiah. So what is your mess? And how do you see God? Because how you see God will determine how you surrender to him, how you trust him, and where your hope comes from. A hope that is not based on the changes in circumstances, but a hope that is in the future, because this life is temporary. Our future is secured forever beyond this life because of Jesus. So the world may appear to be in a mess, complete disorder, but as the stories of Zachariah and Mary tell us, and as scripture shows us time and time again, God is no stranger to mess. He actively uses it to demonstrate his power, his sovereignty, and his love.
And honestly, the world desperately needs to see God right now. These needless wars raging around us with so much destruction and devastation and loss of life that is just not justifiable. The economic decline with rising poverty levels, global increase in anxieties and mental health disorders, and here in our city of Hong Kong, the alarming rise of young people's suicide or attempted suicide. The world needs hope. Jesus is that hope. Both Zachariah and Mary knew that the future was in the promised redemption of their people through the Messiah, Jesus. And they were to play the most important roles in ushering in the kingdom of heaven. As Zachariah's son prepared the way for Jesus and Mary gave birth to Jesus. Jesus is the answer to our world's mess. But I can't help also wonder at the risk that God took to have Jesus arrive as a baby, totally weak and vulnerable, dependent on his mother and earthly father, but also guarded by his heavenly father. Because our God, our heavenly father, is in control. So how we see to surrender and trust God is how we live with hope. So what does that practically mean for us today? Well, we may not be visited by any angels anytime soon, or you might, I mean, I'm not saying you won't, but don't just rely on that. We can still see God. We see God through scripture. We read a lot about who God is and his character. As we learned in our Exodus series, God himself declares his character. He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. We see him through the incarnation of Jesus and the life he recorded in the Gospels. And we see God in the world around us, the beauty of nature, the wonder of creation. Paul refers to this in Romans. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And David also in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. We can see in creation around us, in the visible world, all that has been made by God and his invisible power and divine nature. So take time to watch a sunrise or the sunset. Take a walk in the mountains of Hong Kong and see his splendor. Stand by the sea and watch the beauty and the power 
of the waves. See the beauty of the creatures. See God all around you. And then, as we grow in our understanding of who God is, we truly see him, our natural response will be we will want to surrender our lives to him. Now, sometimes that's easier said than done. So how can we practically surrender? What does that mean? Well, first, it has to take humility. We need to recognize and accept we need God. His ways are so much bigger than our own. And one practical way that we can take time is to regularly identify areas in our life where we feel we're holding and struggling for control. And then confess your need to surrender to God, to surrender whatever it is and allow Him to control. Maybe it's overspending, overeating, drinking too much, challenging family dynamics, difficult work relationships, your job performance. Whatever it is that you are desperately trying to control, bring it to God. Create a habit where you regularly come in prayer to God with confession and surrender. Commit to growing your personal relationship with God. Be committed to a more intimate relationship that involves spending time in prayer. Hang out with Jesus. Allow the Holy Spirit to guide you. Set some time aside that is away from distractions. Go for a walk and talk with Jesus. Sit and meditate on Jesus. Whatever works, find something that works for you. It takes time and effort, but any meaningful relationship does. But it's worthwhile the investment of your time because as you spend more time in relationship with Jesus, you will see God more, and you will want to surrender more, and you will trust more. So it's a healthy cycle. Life is messy. So this Christmas, embrace the mess. Choose to see God in the mess. Choose to surrender despite the mess. Choose to trust God with the mess, and you will know hope. Can I pray for us? Please, would you stand? Father, I thank you for the honor it is to speak today, and I just ask that my words, you know, would take root the things that are from you, the things that you're wanting to speak to us, um, that they would not return void. Anything that is not of you, then may it just disappear. But Father, my heart is that we would be a people that chooses to have hope in you, God, because we desperately need to see you in the mess. I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he is our hope. He is our salvation. And Father, I want to pray specifically for those that are really struggling to see Jesus. And one of the things that I sensed as I was praying was that there is a spiritual blindness. You know, as Jesus went in the Gospels and many of his stories are around 
healing of those that were blind so they would see. There's something significant about that. For us here today, for some of us, there's a spiritual blindness. Some of you know that, some of you don't. And I believe that Jesus wants to heal us of that spiritual blindness if you are willing. And so, Father, I pray in the power of the Holy Spirit that you would release people from this captivity of spiritual blindness, that they would know what it is to see you, God. So much of this world overshadows us, puts obstacles in our way. But Jesus, would you remove all that so you would be clearly seen? God, we need to see you. Because when we see you, we will respond in surrender. And I pray for those here that are choosing to surrender more. I ask that you would give them the courage to sit with you, to identify those areas and trust you will be with them. And I pray for anyone who has experienced that captive nature of shame and I break the hold that shame has over us as a church, as a community, as individuals. Father, may we respond with empathy towards one another, love and grace towards one another, and would we be a people that is free from the hidden shackles of shame. Our future is in you, God. And it is a hopeful, bright future. In Jesus' name, amen.